0: In our day, names don't always hold as much significance, but that's not always been the case. In the Old Testament times, the name stood for a person's reputation. In fact, the word translated as name in the Old Testament, it literally meant a mark or a brand. Parents often gave their children names that described the parents' hopes and the future expectations regarding that child. A study of Bible names reveals much about the personality of the people mentioned in the Bible. For instance, David means beloved. Abraham means father of a multitude. Jacob means trickster. Goliath means splendor. And all of these people proved to be true to their names. Today we're going to talk about the name of the one who has the name above all names, Jesus. And I want to show you from Scripture why Jesus' name is the name above all names. When we finish, I hope that we will all be in awe of the greatness and the majesty of Jesus. Open your Bible to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 is what we're going to look at. I believe that's page 523 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 9 and 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom in order to establish it with judgment and justice from that time, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this title of the message this morning is. Jesus' name above all names. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you today. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Father, we come today with a desire to know Jesus better, a desire to learn more about what these names mean and how they apply to our lives. Father, we want to experience Jesus as our Prince of Peace. We want to experience Jesus as our mighty God, our everlasting Father and our wonderful Counselor. So today, let your Holy Spirit come and take your word and begin to work these things deep into our hearts and deep into our lives, overcome any objections that we may have so that, Father, we could live for your glory and we could know Jesus as the Savior, not only just the Savior of the world, but our Savior personally. Fill me today with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech so that I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Have your way in all of our hearts and all of our lives. We ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the message of Isaiah 9 was a message that God would deliver His people by His light and His presence. Ultimately, it was a message about God's anointed Messiah that would come into the world. This message was a shining message of hope in an agonizing world of despair at the time. Now, our primary text is the most familiar passage of this particular chapter, and, and it is one of the more recognizable Christmas passages. And it's such a rich passage that teaches us a lot about the greatness of Jesus and the hope that we have in him. And we're just going to kind of go through this today, looking at the different parts of it so that we can be reminded of the greatness of Jesus and why the name of Jesus is the name above all names. Now, the passage starts off with for unto us. Now, the unto us part reminds us that Jesus came for our benefit. When Isaiah wrote this passage, he saw at the time a world of despair and of darkness. But he also saw a Messiah that would come and would lift his people out of the darkness and despair of the world around them. He saw a Messiah that would give light for darkness. Look at chapter 9 and verse 1. It says, nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed as when at first... He lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterwards more heavily oppressed her by way of the sea beyond the Jordan in the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shined. Now, if these verses seem familiar, it's because they are mentioned at the start of Jesus' ministry in Matthew chapter 4. The story is familiar. Jesus, he goes into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. And after overcoming the temptations, he comes out of the wilderness filled with the Holy Spirit to begin his earthly ministry. Now, guess where he begins his earthly ministry? He begins it in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew tells us that this was done in fulfillment of these verses right here. Jesus came unto us. To bring us out of darkness into his light so that we wouldn't walk in darkness, but we would have the light of his life. Jesus is the name above all names because he came unto us to bring us out of darkness and into his light. For unto us, it says, a child is born. Unto us, a son is given. Now, it seems significant that it is a child that is born and is a son that is given. It seems to picture both his humanity and his deity, right? This is true of what the Messiah would be. The Messiah would come as a child that was born, but he would also come... As a son that was given. The idea of a son being given. Seems to indicate that in some special way. God would give. This son himself unto the people. This is reminiscent of John 3:16, where Jesus said that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And since Isaiah is the prophet that has written this, it is also likely that the idea of a son connects back to, uh, to Isaiah 7 and 14, where God promised to give a sign of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son who would be called Emmanuel or God with us. This, of course, was fulfilled at Jesus' birth. So again, Jesus is the name above all names because he came unto us to be God with us. Then in the rest of chapter six, Isaiah through, or God through Isaiah, he gives us four famous names for Jesus that are descriptive of who he is and what he does. And they reveal why the name of Jesus is the name above all names. First, Jesus is the wonderful counselor. Now, people seek counselors because they're in pain or because they have a problem. Those in pain need comfort. Those with problems need guidance. When Jesus came to earth, he experienced pain and he went through problems just like we do. The main difference between Jesus' experience of pain and problems and ours is that the pain and problems Jesus experienced never caused him to make a wrong action or a wrong reaction or have a wrong attitude or do anything wrong in that moment at all. And this enables him to be a wonderful counselor in our pain and our problems to help us make right decisions and do the things that we ought to do. The book of Hebrews reminds us we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now that Jesus can sympathize with our weaknesses, it, it essentially means that He feels our pain and He knows our problems. He He knows what we go through. He knows what we experience for He experienced them Himself. And yet, as I said, He never did anything wrong. He never reacted improperly. He never took a wrong action because of the pain of the problems that were going on in his life. And that truth, it motivates us to seek him at the throne of grace, where we are promised that in that moment we will find grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. Jesus is our wonderful counselor who can help us with any pain we're experiencing. Jesus is our wonderful counselor who can help us with any problems that we're going through. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. So he is the name above all names. Secondly, Jesus is the mighty God. Solidifying the fact that the Messiah would be God, we are told explicitly that he would be the mighty God. Now, the Hebrew word used for mighty, it gives us an interesting picture. It carries with it the idea of being a hero or a champion. right? So Jesus came to be the champion God, really, that would defeat all of our enemies. The Bible gives us several enemies that Jesus has defeated. Right? Jesus has defeated death. And while death is still a thing in this life, it does not have the ultimate victory. Death has been defeated for the disciple of Jesus Christ because death in this life actually leads us to the presence of Jesus. And that is victory. While death is still a thing in this life, there is coming a day when death will be fully and finally defeated. There'll be no more suffering, no more parting, no more hurting and no more death. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated death. Jesus has also defeated Satan. Satan is the great enemy of our souls that seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And though he roams the earth like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour, Jesus has defeated him. In fact, Colossians says that Jesus made a spectacle of him. So while Satan may roam and roar, he has no rights in the life of the disciple of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the mighty God, has defeated Satan on our behalf. Right? Jesus has defeated sin. One of the most important truths for the believer in Jesus Christ to understand is that they no longer have an obligation to fulfill the desires of their sinful nature. Yes, the sinful nature is still there. Yes, it still fights for control over our lives. Yes, the battle still rages and the battle is still strong. But no, we do not have to give in to its impulses. We never have to give in to its impulses. Jesus condemned sin on the cross and made it possible for us to live in victory over sin. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated sin on our behalf. Jesus has defeated bondage. Now, bondage is essentially anything that enslaves us, not just sin. That's typically the way that we think about it. But it can be far more than that. Think about it in a term of what 2 Corinthians 10 describes as a stronghold. A stronghold is a mindset impregnated with hopelessness that accepts as unchanging that which is clearly against God's will. So think about in your life. Is there something in your life that is clearly against God's will? When you think about this particular thing, is there a mindset of hopelessness that says this is just the way that it is? There's no way I can ever overcome it. There's no way I can ever be free. Well, that's a stronghold. And it's a sign that you are in bondage. But we are not meant to live that way. Jesus can and will free you from bondage from every stronghold. Jesus said that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. There is no bondage and no stronghold that the disciple of Jesus Christ must live in. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated bondage on our behalf. And then Jesus has defeated condemnation. The disciple of Jesus Christ is aware of the fact that they have sinned. No doubt. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have done things we ought not to have done. However, the disciple of Jesus Christ is not beaten down by this fact. The disciple of Jesus Christ does not deny this fact. doesn't act like it's not a big deal. But the disciple of Jesus Christ does not live in bondage or under the weight of condemnation because they know that Jesus Christ has set them free, forever free from condemnation. Jesus has absorbed the wrath of God against our sin. And because of that, as long as we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for us now or ever. Man, if there is one truth the disciple of Jesus Christ should get a hold of that would help them to live in the freedom and the liberty that Christ wants us to have, is that there is no condemnation for us in Jesus Christ. He has freed us, forever freed us, from condemnation. Jesus is the mighty God who has defeated condemnation and has set us free. Jesus is the name above all names because He is the mighty God who has defeated our enemies. Jesus is also the everlasting Father. Well, Jesus is eternal... That doesn't seem to be the major thrust of what it means by eternal father. Rather, the emphasis is on Jesus loving us as a father loves his children. This means in part that he will care for us, that he will lead us, he will comfort us, he will teach us, he will protect us, and he will correct us when we stray. It also means that anything he does in us and through us and for us is always based upon his Love, And possibly, best of all, it means that nothing can ever separate us from the love of God. The Apostle Paul writes, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, shall ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus Our Lord, Paul was convinced that nothing could ever separate us from God's love. Death can't separate us from God's love. Death does not separate the believer from God's love. In fact, in all honesty, death ushers us into the presence of Christ. And that is a victory for us. Life cannot separate us from God's love. There is nothing that will ever come up in this life that will separate the disciple of Jesus from the love of God. There is no hardship. There is no person. There is no circumstance. There is no nothing in this life that will ever be able to separate us from God's love that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Evil spiritual powers can't. Like angels or principalities. We know in plenty of places... The Bible says we are in a real spiritual battle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, right? Ephesians 6 and 10. And the evil spiritual forces would do all that they can to bring about our destruction. And there's many things they might be able to do, but one thing they cannot do is they cannot separate us. From the love of God. They can attack us and they can do their worst. But in the end, they will find out that Christ has made a spectacle of them through his cross. They have no power over us. They cannot separate us from God and the love that has been revealed in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the tide of time cannot separate us from the love of God. There is nothing in my life now and there's nothing that will come into my life in the future that can ever separate me from the love of God. There is nothing in your life right now as a disciple of Jesus Christ that can separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that will come into your life as a disciple of Jesus Christ that will separate you from the love of God. There is nothing that can happen in any of our lives or our future that the providence of God does not secure us through and is not is not contained within the love of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. There is no created thing that can separate us from the love of God. The idea of height and depth have some various interpretations, but what makes the most sense to me is that it refers to the full expanse of creation. And that would fit well with the next line of nor any created thing. There is nothing in all of creation that can separate us from God's love that has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. Instead, all things will just prove to us that even if our heart and flesh fail us, God is our strength and our portion forever. For there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God as revealed in Jesus Christ. We have constant access to the love of God through Jesus Christ. We experience the love of God because of Jesus Christ. As long as Jesus Christ is our Savior, this love will never change. Jesus, not the circumstances of life, not our feelings or any other thing, determine or guarantee God's love for us. Jesus guarantees that God's love for us is eternal. Jesus is the name above all names because he loves us with the everlasting love of a father. And then finally, Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Now, there seem to be three aspects The fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. The first is the peace that His kingdom brings into the world. But notice earlier in Isaiah 6 that unto us a a son is given and the government will be upon His shoulder. Then look at verse 7. And of the increase of His government and peace, (coughs) there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it, to establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform or guarantee this. The idea of the government that Jesus would bring is essentially the kingdom of God. I think those are basically the same thing. The kingdom of God began to be ushered into the world when Jesus was born on that first Christmas morning. And it has been expanding ever since. And where the kingdom expands, peace reigns in those areas. And it will continue to expand until the Bible says that the entire world is brought under the rule and the reign of Jesus. And in that day, all wars and strife will cease. But Jesus will judge between many peoples. He will rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. I mean, our world today could use some of that, couldn't it? Our world today is filled with violence and anger and hatred and strife. Those things will not reign forever. The kingdom of Jesus Christ, it will spread and it will grow and it will conquer the world to the point when weapons of war are destroyed and turn into things that are harmless till there's not even a need to teach how to fight and how to learn war anymore. Jesus is the name above all names because he is the prince of peace that will usher in true and lasting peace in this world. Secondly, there's the peace that He brings within us. The Bible describes some people as being like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. It says that these people are they're always tossed about. They're always stirred up. They're always uneasy. They're always anxious. they're always fearful. They're always angry. They're always in turmoil, both within themselves and with others around them. The Bible says that these people have no peace. But Jesus can bring peace into the life that is stirred up. Jesus said, peace I I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. The peace that Jesus gives us is different from the world because the peace is based upon Jesus. But it's not based upon things that are changing like a political party. It's not based upon things that, that external circumstances can destroy like our prosperity. The peace is based upon the person of Jesus Christ. And it's not a peace that we earn, and it's not a peace that we develop and we build. It is a peace that He gives to us. And since it is a peace that He gives to us, there's there's nothing or no one that can take it from us. Now, we can set it aside and allow ourselves to be turmoiled again, and stirred up again, and in strife again, but we don't have to. Jesus has given us a peace that the Bible says passes all understanding. And the world doesn't shake it. And the world doesn't change it. And the world can't steal it. And the world can't change it at all. Jesus has given us a peace that takes all of the strife and all of the turmoil and all of the, the constant upset that's within us, and He brings peace into it. Now, that doesn't mean there's not going to be conflict in our lives. And that doesn't mean there's not going to be stuff that happens in the world that we don't like. But it means in the midst of all of that, We're at peace because we're with Jesus. There is a peace that Jesus can give. The world cannot steal. The world cannot comprehend. Jesus is the name above all names because he is the prince of peace who can bring peace to the turmoil of our lives. And finally, Jesus brings us peace with God. Before sin entered the world, Mankind walked with God in near perfect communion. But sin changed everything. At its core, sin is rebellion against the rule and the reign of God in our lives. Sin is essentially shaking our fists at God and saying, you will not rule over me. And this brings hostility between us and God. But Jesus came to bring an end to these hostilities by him, by Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross and you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now has he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless above reproach. In His sight. We were all once alienated from God. We were all once enemies of God. Not by God's design or God's will, but by our minds and our wicked works. But Jesus came and He came to bring peace to that. Jesus' death on the cross, it paid the penalty that our sins Had earned. And he made it possible for us to go from enemies of God to the dearly loved children of God. Jesus alone can bring peace between us and the Lord. Jesus is the name above all names because he is the Prince of Peace who, through his death and resurrection, made peace between us and God. The question is, How do we respond to the fact that Jesus is all of these things, that he is the name above all names? How do you respond to one who is your wonderful counselor, your mighty God, your everlasting father and your prince of peace? The Apostle Paul has told us. Says God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those under the on those on the earth and those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the father that Jesus came unto us As a child that was born and a son that was given. Jesus is our wonderful counselor. Our mighty God. Our everlasting father and our prince of peace. And as we understand that his name is the name above all names. It should lead us to fall down before him in awe and worship. We should bow before him and confess him as Lord. Jesus is worthy of. Of this worship. Jesus is worthy of this confession. Jesus is worthy because he is the name that is above all names. The reality is that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is the name above all names, and so he is worthy of this worship and he is worthy of this confession. Jesus is the mighty God, and so he will ensure that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. The question is not, will we bow and will we confess? The question is, when will we do this? Will we bow and confess Jesus as Lord now? Because we recognize his worthiness and we want to submit to his lordship. Or will we do it later because we have to? You see, again, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those who live their lives rebelling against Jesus's authority over their lives will bow their knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Even those that reject the salvation that Jesus offers will one day bow their knee, bend their knees and confess with their mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. But it won't be the willing bowing of grateful worship of one that has received the salvation that Jesus came to provide. Instead, it will be the unwilling bowing and the fear-filled confession of a, of a rebel that is now standing before the king in judgment. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. Let's be sure that we recognize the greatness of Jesus and we do it now in awe and worship. Let me read you part of a song that we sometimes sing. It says, without him, I would be dying. Without him, I'd be enslaved. And without him, life would be hopeless. But with Jesus... Thank God I'm saved. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Please don't turn him away. Oh Jesus, my Jesus, without him, how lost I would be. Let me ask you what the song asks. Do you know him today? Jesus is the name above all names. And if you do not know him, do not turn him away. Let's stand.